Well, I got revived in college uh, and was involved in a campus ministry at the University of Washington called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's, uh, it's the campus ministry of our denomination. It's how I ended up in this denomination. And uh, at the same time that I was a student in RUF at the University of Washington, a minister named Glenn Hoberg was attempting to plant an RUF at Harvard. Um, he raised support and moved to campus and started meeting with anyone who would meet with him and getting to know people and gathering people together into small groups and small groups into large groups and preaching the word and ministering to anyone who would listen. And I say attempting to start an RUF because after one year of ministry, Glenn had gathered five students. And so after a second year of similar ministry, he had... 10 students. And after three years, 15, and that ended up being where he plateaued, four years, 15 students, five years, 15 students. So Glenn Hoberg became the campus minister who raised support so he could go to Harvard and minister to 15 students. And uh, as he labored and and cared for them well, uh, Glenn was not well known. Uh, he was uh, never invited to speak at a youth retreat or an evangelism conference. Uh, no one asked him his insights on how to connect with a postmodern culture or preach the gospel or gather a relevant group. Uh, but he labored on there for about eight years, ministering to 15 students. And after about eight years of ministry, he felt like maybe it was time for him to move on. Not because he was uh, frustrated with the 15 students. It's just, you, you get to a point where you're old enough where college ministry doesn't really work anymore. And, uh, but he felt like the Lord had given him gifts for evangelism and reaching out in his time at Harvard. And so he decided that he wanted to plant a church. So he passed the ministry at Harvard on to someone else. And so there's another minister there now. And they still have 15 students, by the way. Uh, but Glenn uh, Hoberg raised support. And met with some church planning directors, and he decided that he was going to move to Washington, D.C. and plant a church in Washington. So again, he raised support. He moved to Washington. He started walking around town, meeting with anyone who would meet with him, uh, meeting with people one-on-one, gathering people into small groups, gathering small groups into large groups. And after one year of ministry, he had a group of well over 100 people and then 200, and then 500. And Grace D.C. has become one of the most prestigious and well-known churches in our denomination uh, with a vibrant uh, ministry to the government and government employees and small groups and movie discussion nights and children's activities and this just massive, influential, vibrant church in Washington, D.C. And Glenn gets invited to speak at retreats and church planning conferences. In fact, he was there when Brandon and I went to Phoenix in January to give a presentation on what had succeeded and, and how do you gather a culturally relevant, vibrant church in a major city. And uh, having the opportunity to know Glenn, both before and after, uh, I know that uh, he often feels annoyed at getting to, uh, invited to speak in such conferences, and people ask him, what's your technique? What did you do? How did the success happen? He's often tempted to say, well, I did exactly what I did at Harvard. 
I went out on campus and I met with people and preached the gospel and gathered people into small groups and small groups into large groups. And somehow, in the context of Harvard and and the providence of the Lord, the God willed that he would have an intense and fruitful ministry to 15 people. And somehow, in the context of Washington, D.C., and the providence of the Lord, the Lord decided that he would have a vibrant and fruitful ministry to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Todd um, has organized for us a sermon series called Preparing for Ministry, built on the concept that all of us are, are ministers. It's called the, um, the priesthood of all believers. And it's not even a statement of what should be, that we all ought to be ministers. It's really just a statement of fact that as believers in Christ, we are ministers. And so how do we prepare ourselves for that? And we're really in, in a sub-series within the series on the temptations of ministry, looking at the temptations that Christ faced in meeting with the devil and translating those into how we are tempted, the things that could train wreck our ability to have a good ministry to those around us. Last week, Brandon spoke on self-sufficiency, self-reliance as the first temptation of ministry that we might be tempted to believe that we have enough to feed ourselves and that we can feed others out of what we ourselves have when instead it's Christ who feeds us and we follow him. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at the second temptation of Christ, really just verses 5 through 7, and translate that into the second temptation of ministry for us. And uh, having thought about it this last week, I've, I've settled on a word that I think is going to feel strange to you, uh, but it's the best word I've come up with to, to summarize what I think is here. And I hope this, the strangeness of it is actually challenging in a helpful way. And this is it. That the second temptation of ministry is the temptation of leadership. Or at least leadership, as, as the world defines it. It's, it's the temptation to be an effective leader in a crisis situation when there's something good that the Lord has put before us and it's not coming about, that we grab leadership by the horns and we make it happen. And related to it is the, is, is the temptation to the, the glory of leadership, that having made it happen by techniques and our own strength, we, we become celebrated leaders. We receive glory for that which we have done by our own strength. My uh, illustration of Glenn Hoberg is intended to be an illustration of the temptation to leadership, but Glenn is not really the one that I'm talking about. It's really an illustration about all of us. Because no one wants a campus minister that ministers to 15 people. And maybe more importantly, no one wants to be a campus minister who ministers to 15 people. And so what we want is we want our heroes and our leaders who've been effective, and we want to give them glory and learn about their techniques so that we ourselves can apply the techniques and become the campus minister with hundreds of people and be effective and receive glory. Uh, Well, how did I get that from this text? Uh, We're going to take a look at this in three parts. The first is, uh, what was Jesus' temptation? And then we'll translate that into what I already talked about, how that translates into our temptation, the second temptation of ministry. 
Uh, and then I want to leave us with the power that we're given to stand in temptation. So we'll start by taking a look at Jesus' temptation, and it is, to put it quite bluntly, the temptation to throw oneself off a tall building. Which is precisely the difficulty of this text. The devil comes to him, and he takes him to the holy city, this is verse 5, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Uh... I will confess to you that I don't think I have ever struggled with the temptation to throw myself (laughs) off of a large building. In pondering it, the first thing that came to mind was a few years ago, Todd and I traveled together to a presbytery in San Francisco, and Todd said, have you ever walked out on the Golden Gate Bridge? And I said, no, I haven't. Let's do it. So presbytery's over. We're on our way back to the airport, and we're swinging by the Golden Gate Bridge. And so we walked out to the middle. There's a walkway. And it's right on the edge, and I looked over at a very small boat going underneath me, and my blood ran cold. And I stepped back from the edge and hoped that I wouldn't become dizzy, because it was high and terrifying. And uh, I had no temptation whatsoever (laughs) to, to throw myself off, and in fact had to force myself to not think about what it would be like to, to tumble down and meet the water below. And so the great question is, why is the devil think it's such a good idea to tempt Jesus to throw himself off of a building? Uh, And the devil might be dark, and he might be evil, but he's not stupid. And uh, just like he studies you, he studied Christ and knew him well and knew his heart and his desires and his insides and, and precisely the buttons to push. And I think he offered this temptation because he believed that this is one of the most sensitive points for Christ. This is where he could really get him in his guts. Uh, And my best guess on what's going on here is that the key is in the phrase, if, if, if you are the son of God. Because if Christ throws himself down from the temple in the city of town where all of the faithful people are gathered. And just as the Bible says what happened, angels, poof, leap in and gather him up. And he arrives down in safety in the temple square. Everyone would know that this is the Christ. And, and that is a good thing. It it is Christ's heart. It's the soul of his mission. It's why he became a human being, is to come and to be the Son of God for us and to be known that he is, the apostles make very clear, he's the one. He's the one from above. He's the Son of God. He's he's the true king with all righteousness and goodness and mercy. He's He's the ruler and the tender father that we've all known. And what the greatest need of humanity is, is to know that he is who he says that he is. The Apostle John, who perhaps of all the disciples is the one who knew Jesus the best, who walked with him and reclined at his breast, as we read in our temptation, wrote the Gospel of John, And at the end, he summarizes this whole massive gospel. Why have I written this whole thing? He says, these things have been written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That those who knew Jesus best had this closest to their heart because it was what was closest to Christ's heart. It's the best, best thing. It's the ultimate good to believe that Jesus was the Christ and in believing that to have life in his name. The devil is challenging Jesus to do precisely that which he came to do, to become known, to make clear to everyone that he is, is the one in a way that, that no one could mistake. The same temptation, the exact same temptation comes to Christ at the end of his ministry. He is on the cross, and what do the soldiers mock him, and what do the scribes and the Pharisees say? If you are the Christ, come down from there. Call angels to save you. Just before that, Peter's in the garden. He's trying to defend Jesus. He's busy cutting somebody's ear off. And Jesus stops him and says, Do, do you not know? This is Mark 20, Matthew 26. So that I, I could appeal to my father and he would at once send me 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That the devil is tempting Jesus to the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. And that not just with the devil, but throughout his ministry, in fact, I have to imagine that the devil was working behind the scenes because this, this is the temptation for Jesus, bringing up again and again and again, reveal yourself by your own power. Take up leadership. Make it happen. Because you've been promised something good and you, you Jesus, you live in a world where not one shred of that promise has come about. That God sent you to the world to be the son, to be known, and not only has no one recognized you, but you are in the desert and you are alone and no one is with you but the devil. And this is your chance to say, I'm not waiting for God anymore. I'm going to make this good thing happen. And what happens... is that he decides to wait in faith on the Lord. And Christ, who is the ultimate, the ultimate leader, he's the real king, becomes the real king by becoming the ultimate follower. What does he say over and over in his ministry? I have no authority. I have no authority except that which has been given me from above. I, I speak nothing but the words that my Father has given me. The Christ, the great King, waits for his Father to bring about the promise in his own time, in his own way, and does nothing but follow him in prayer and faith. In fact, he ends up waiting his entire life for that to come about. In the Gospel of Mark, he dies without seeing it. In the Gospel of Mark, at no point does anyone say Jesus is the Christ until the moment after he has finally died on the cross. 
And it says there, when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That God put this good thing before him, and yet for his own purposes, and we'll find out for our good, that we might all be saved, he had to wait even to death on the Lord to fulfill the good thing. The greatest story or analogy I can think of is actually one from the Bible. It's King David, who as a shepherd was told by God through the prophets that God would make him king over Israel. And so God immediately deposed the king and made him a king, right? No. Years and years and years transpire under King Saul. Well, David first serves the king when he's supposed to be the king, and then later spends years running for his life because the king is trying to kill him. Can you imagine receiving a promise from God like that and then having that been followed by years of servitude to the position you're supposed to have and then years of fleeing for your life? I mean, who would not think that they were crazy in having heard that in the first place? But yet somehow in the power of the Spirit and in faith, David persists and waits. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I know this good thing that God has put before me. He will bring it about. I'm going to wait. And in fact, in the end... David's own soldiers can't take the waiting anymore, and one of them comes across Saul in a field and kills him, and then goes running back to David and says, I finally done it. Now you can be king. I killed Saul. He took leadership by the horns, the thing that hadn't happened. He made it happen. In the leadership of the world, by his own means, he established it effectively. Saul is gone, and the way is open for goodness to come, and then he goes to the future king, waiting for the glory that comes with effective leadership. King David, I, the great leader, have made the way for you to become king. And David, maintaining his faith, first and foremost, in his father to the last, looks at him and says, Why were you not concerned? to put to the sword the Lord's anointed. Why did you think it would be a good idea to take matters into your own hands? He's saying that style of leadership is not the leadership of life. It's the leadership of death. And so David actually has the man put to death because it's not the kind of kingship or leadership that he wants to have. Jesus becomes the ultimate leader by being the ultimate follower. Well, how does this relate to us in our lives, in our ministry? Well, I've already given you the two points of the temptation of leadership. The first is to be the temptation to be effective, to make things happen. We might feel this in ministry because, again, none of us wants to be the campus minister with 15 students. Uh, I know many of you here have poured out many hours of ministry into our church, into our community, into your places of work, into the school. And there's good things the Lord has set before us, and some of them have not come about. And we struggle and labor under weariness, wondering what what all this is about. Why, Why organize the nursery? 
week after week after week, always short on volunteers? Why serve in the nursery? Why serve in our community or participate in a nonprofit or any of the things we do when we don't see the fruit? And so always there's a temptation. Well, maybe, maybe if we created a plan, maybe if we did something different, because this, this clearly is we're not doing the right thing. There's the temptation to be effective, to make things happen in our own lives. Um, some of you have spent years waiting for the spouse to come in in your life who is not there yet. That, and that's a good thing. You were made for companionship and friendship and to have an outlet for the physical longings that are there in your life in a good way for a right reason. And the Lord would not have made you that way if he did not intend to fulfill those needs, longings, and desires beyond all expectation at some point. But yet now, I know on some level, all of us feel the, the temptation to, to, to meet the need now. It's a, it's a legitimate need met in an illegitimate timing, in an illegitimate way. That, that's the temptation of, of leading in that way. Or the good and healthy longing for security, to finally arrive at the place where our family is secure and the finances are set and we've reached the right status and now we don't have to move anymore and we can just be here and everything will be great and it hasn't happened yet, but if we put in enough hours and, and save up uh, enough money or spend enough money and uh, achieve the right status, now it's not good, but finally by our own efforts we can, we'll, we'll plateau out to the life of tranquility. Even in my own life, I find myself over and over asking, what can I do and how can I get there, rather than to stop and pray in the midst of the desert with the Lord. It's a temptation to, to make it happen. Related is the temptation to be glorious, to have the glory of leadership. I once heard a minister say that God made enough glory for Jesus and enough joy for everyone else. You see, here's what I mean by that. The first part of temptation is that, is that Jesus was tempted to take matters into his own hands so that he might receive the glory due to him. And so we learn from that that we need to also wait on the Lord and to not take into our own hands the good things that he has set before us. But the second thing is, Jesus was longing for the glory that was rightly his. And it's not ours. That God has made enough glory for Jesus and enough joy for everyone else. And that we find that peace and that joy in entering into the glory of Jesus. That already he has been revealed to be the son of God. And he, he's coming back. It's going to be even more clear. And our joy is not to receive that glory, but to, in a sense, to bask in that glory, to say, yes, yes, he is the one. That when the devil comes to Jesus and says, show your glory, Jesus says, I'm not going to tempt the Father, not yet. And the devil comes to us and says, show your glory. And we say, 
Not now and not ever. That's Jesus' job. The glory is for him. The joy is for me. I claim the joy. But it's so tempting and so subtle. Um, At the same gathering that Brandon and I were at, a speaker said, the great perversion of American Christianity is the temptation to do things for Jesus. To, to be the leader and to be effective and to do glorious things and to receive the glory for Jesus. You know, even in my own life, we've started this church planting network and I have had to confess to friends and guard my heart and make sure that it's a group effort and we have a board and we pray a lot because honestly, I want to be the man. I want to be the guy that moved to Hawaii and started a church planting network. And when I got here, things happened. And it was so awesome. Do you remember, Nathaniel? We should build a statue to him. <laughs> but just like the man who came to David, it's, it's leadership of death. That we become leaders in a gospel sense by becoming followers, just as he was. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who's ever been born. And I have to believe it's at least partly related to this, that John the Baptist was on a one-way train to jail and death, and Jesus was coming into his glory. People are following him. John the Baptist, his disciples come to him, and they're like, what gives? Your disciples are leaving you and going to Jesus. And John says, You yourselves bear me witness. This is in John 3. I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices, joy, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete So he must increase, and I must decrease. That is the joy that is found in Christ. That he is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. And we are also the friend of the bridegroom. That his glory increases, and ours will decrease. And John found joy in that place. To say, isn't it so great that Jesus has come into his glory and we got to be here for it? We got to wait and trust and long for it. And now it's here. We're seeing it in bits and pieces and it's finally going to come in its full glory. Well, where do we find the strength? Where do we find the strength to resist this ever so subtle temptation? to be effective, to receive glory. I've got just three thoughts. One of them is to, to recognize that what is most needed is not strength or determination, but faith. It was the faith that King David had in the promises of his heavenly father that gave him the strength to wait all those years. If God says it, it'll happen. That's, that's faith. That's what faith is. It was Jesus exercising faith throughout his entire earthly life, 
No, it's not time for the glory. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's waiting. He's still waiting for the Father to give him his full glory. The second is this. So our passage begins in Matthew 4.1. And if you back up just before that. So it begins with Jesus going into the desert to be tempted. And immediately before that is the baptism of Jesus. And we hear this beginning in uh, Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold... The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Luke actually said, Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That immediately before these temptations, he receives two things. And I'm telling you right now, they're the same two things that you have. That the dangerous thing in reading the temptations of Jesus is to be like, well, he overcame temptation because he's God. Well, yes. But he's also, he was also a human being. We're told with clarity that there is no temptation that man has struggled with, that Jesus himself did not experience. Jesus was tempted just like us, and he fought back with the same two tools that we have. Well, the word, which Todd mentioned, but the word contains the promise of the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And if you're now in Christ because of the faith that he had in his death on the cross, and his forgiving your sins, his message is your message. And this is the point of the confession of sin earlier, and frankly, the point of taking communion when we take it, that if you have confessed Christ, his glory is credited to your account, and it does not matter what you have done, that the Father looks at you and says, this, this is my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased, this is mine. That is the, the antidote to the temptation of glory. It's an entirely different kind of glory. Really, it's just joy. You don't have to do great things for Jesus. He won't be more impressed than he already is. But then Jesus gets a second thing. He gets the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who comes down on Jesus before his ministry and empowers everything that he does, reminding him of this truth and giving him the strength of faith and hope and communicating the love of the Father. And it is the same Holy Spirit that we have been given, that when we face temptation, the temptation to be self-sufficient or glorious or effective or whatever it is that we have at our disposal, the same tools that Christ used, the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. And we can say in that moment, I'm not going to do that. Jesus, be with me now because I'm hurting and I'm waiting for the fulfillment of the things you have promised. And I need a little bit of Holy Spirit power right now to wait. I will wait. 
for you to do your work. The last image I want to leave you with, the third tool against temptation is just this. Remember, Christ's temptation was to be recognized, to be known for the good that he really is. On the cross, he's being mocked. If you really are who you say you are, come down from the cross. And Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible, in so many cases in the Bible, has taken what's there and boiled it down to its gospel essence. And she is telling the story to children, and she writes, but they did not know that it was not the nails that were holding him to the cross, but love for his people. That he waited because it was the will of the Father, because he loved us, because they both loved us. And they have gone before us into the darkest valleys of temptation and will never leave us alone. Just as my wife said, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were forgiven in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.